Nick Bolstrom is a Swedish-born philosopher with a background in theoretical physics, computational neuroscience, logic, artificial intelligence, and philosophy. He is the most cited professional philosopher in the world under the age of 50. He is a professor at Oxford University, where he heads the Future of Humanity Institute as its founding director. He is the author of some 200 publications, including Anthropic Bias, Global Catastrophic Risks, Human Enhancement, and Superintelligence, Paths, Dangers, Strategies, a New York Times bestseller, which helped spark a global conversation about the future of AI. He has also published a series of influential papers, including ones that introduced the simulation argument and the concept of existential risk. He is a repeat main TED speaker. He has been on Foreign Policy's Top 100 Global Thinkers list twice. Bostrom's academic work has been translated into more than 30 languages. Nick Bostrom, the Future of Humanity Institute. Welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Ah, thanks for inviting me. You and your colleagues have said that you expect that we'll have the singularity roughly 2040, maybe 2045. What kind of world do you think we'll have then if we were to try and travel there, look around and maybe describe it to us? Or maybe there's a few possible futures you see for 2040 that you are working to ensure that we get the future we want. Well, I mean, who knows really, but I think on the timeline, first of all, those states, I wouldn't anchor too much. I don't think it's just too uncertainty about how long these developments might take. And we really need to think rather than having some particular date in mind, we need to think in terms of probability distribution smeared out over a large interval. I do think though that there is a real possibility that within the lifetime of many people who are here today, we will see the arrival of transformative AI, machine intelligence systems that not only can automate specific tasks, but can replicate the full generality of human thinking. And so that everything that we humans can do with our brains, machines will be able to do, and in fact, do faster and more efficiently. What the consequences of that is, is very much an open question. And I think depends in part on the extent to which we manage to get our act together before these developments in terms of, on the one hand, working out there are technical issues in AI alignment, figuring out exactly the methods by which you could ensure that such very powerful cognitive engines will be aligned to our values, will actually do what we intend for them to do as opposed to something else. And then of course, also the political challenges of ensuring that such a powerful technology will be used for positive ends. So depending on how well we perform on those two challenges, the outcome, I think could be extremely good or extremely bad. And I think all of those possibilities are still in the cards. Yeah. And so we have to think about them now. Yeah. That seems to make sense. So when you were founding the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, how did you identify your global priorities in terms of safety, existential risk, and other areas? There are many problems and challenges and issues in the world, of course. We were trying to focus on the small subset that really could fundamentally transform the human condition, not just repaint it in a different color or add a little decoration on the surface, but either things that could threaten the very survival of earth originating intelligent life, or maybe in some profound way, transform human nature. So that was one filter. And that of course, excludes most questions and challenges that we are facing. And then within that subset, we were trying to focus on ones that were neglected by academia. So we've done 
some work, but not very much work, for example, on climate change, not because it's not important, but because there are already many people working on that. And we thought we could make the biggest contribution by picking up some of the really important questions that have traditionally been ignored in the universities and by academia and maybe relegated to science fiction authors or some retired physicist writing some popular book in his or her retirement. I think some of these questions, such as the future of AI, but there are also some other prospects that when we started really were not part of mainstream academic research and we thought they deserved to be. Yeah, I did want to go into climate change. What might be the possibility, even though you might not feel your expert, it's very hard. It's always a constantly changing landscape. But one of the big issues, of course, with climate change is establishing an international global governments to accelerate that. And do you think there is a place for AI and maybe on some of those challenges? How do we prevent wildfires, drought, floods? And this is a long list. Yeah, there definitely are arrows going in both directions there. On the one hand, if AI actually worked out in the ideal way, then it could be an extremely powerful tool for developing solutions to climate change and many other environmental problems that we have. For example, in developing more efficient, clean energy technologies. There are efforts on the way now to try to, for example, get fusion reactors to work using AI tools to sort of guide the containment of the plasma. Recent work with AlphaFold by DeepMind, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet, but they are working on developing AI tools that can be used for molecular modeling. And you could imagine various uses of that for developing, say, better solar panels or other kind of remedial technologies to clean up or reduce pollution. So certainly the potential from AI to the environment are manifold and will increase over time. In the other direction, I mean, you pointed I think to maybe the critical issue here, which is the governance aspects, which in fact, I think is one of these core source of many of the greatest threats to human civilization and the planet, the difficulties we have in effectively tackling these global governance challenges. So global warming, I think at its core is really a problem of a global commons. So we all share the same atmosphere and the same global climate ultimately, and we have a certain reservoir, the environment can absorb a certain amount of carbon dioxide without damage. But if we put out too much, then we together face a negative consequence, right? But for any particular polluter, it seems cheaper and easier just to keep polluting. And the consequence of one more factory is kind of trivial. But when we all do this all over the world over many years, then this results. And we don't really have yet an effective way to come together globally, reliably to solve these global common problems that we have. And hence we see the tragedy that we use up the resource of the absorptive capacity of the atmosphere. We overuse that just as we overfish the oceans and we create other problems like war in some sense can be also seen as a global coordination failure. And I think this will also present difficulties with future developments in artificial intelligence in that there might be scenarios where it would be very important to be able to coordinate, say at some point to slow development so that we can make sure that the systems we develop, eventually super intelligent systems have the right safeguards installed and that we have the safety technology perfected. And right now that doesn't really seem to be feasible because there are so many different independent actors that are kind of racing to get there first. So yeah, I think once one tries to dig down really to the root of a lot of these problems, one can sort of see a common denominator, which is the difficulties we humans have to work cooperatively together. 
Yeah. And there's so many things in your response. There's so many problems. We'll never be without work if we're trying to solve them. When you mention, I feel like there's the waste, incredible waste of energy. I believe 75% of energy is actually wasted. It's produced, but it's uh, wasted on the grid. As you know, the food insecurity is an incredible amount of food wastage. I feel like AI could really apply well to this. On the other side of that, you know, there's this question of the utility monster and maybe a very easy calculation for anyone is to say that we're AI or not, we're overpopulated and uh, mm. you don't want to be at the wrong end of that equation. Right. Yeah. So it's going to be a very powerful tool, I think, that could be used both for constructive and destructive purposes. And if we look at how we humans have used other general purpose technologies, like from fire to combustion to I mean, pretty much anything, we've used them for a multitude of purposes, some good and some bad. And I expect it to be the same with artificial intelligence. And so that then you know, gets us back to these governance challenges that we need some kind of political framework ultimately that can help bias the applications towards the positive ones. So as you consider the future of work and our potential AI co-creators, you know, what do you see? Well, I see ultimately more and more of the tasks that we humans uh, now have to perform ourselves being automatable. And that will, in the early stages, I think, free us up to do other kinds of work that can't yet be automated. This is what we've seen since the industrial revolution. We can, you know, have factories that perform various kinds of tasks that previously required more human laborers to do, but then those human laborer like can move on to do other things. They, they can be graphics designers or podcasters or what have you, right? Eventually though, when AI becomes good enough, they can do those tasks as well. And so I'm interested in the question, although it's not really so applicable to the world we have right now, but if we are thinking ahead about what happens when AI one day fully, truly succeeds in its ambition to not just automate specific tasks, but to achieve general artificial intelligence, then it's quite interesting to think about a world in which human labor is completely superfluous. If all jobs could be done by AI, could be done more cheaply and better by, then what would we do, right? It would be a a world without work. And I think that actually, I mean, initially might be sounds kind of frightening, right? Where would we, how would we earn an income? What would you do all day long? I think it's also a big opportunity though, to rethink what it means to be human and what gives meaning in our lives. I think because we have been forced to work since the rise of our species, right? We had to earn our bread by the sweat of our brows. We have kind of defined our identity and dignity around work. A lot of people take pride in being a breadwinner, in making a contribution to society by putting an effort and achieving some useful aims. But in this hypothetical future where that's not needed anymore, we would have to find some other basis for our human worth, not what we can do to produce instrumental useful outcomes, but maybe rather what we can be and experience to add value to the world by actually living happy and fulfilling lives. And so a leisure culture, cultivating enjoyment of life, all the good things, happy conversation, appreciation for art, for natural beauty, like all of these things that are sort of right now seen as kind of gratuitous extras, little frills around the existence of the universe. Maybe we would have to sort of build those into the center and that would have profound consequences for how we educate people, the kinds of culture that we encourage, the habits and characters 
that we celebrate, th that will require a big transition. But I think ultimately that is also a, an enormous opportunity to make the human experience much better than it currently is. Yeah, of course, we are presently reconsidering our educational system. One goal, I don't believe it's the true goal of education, but it's been preparing people for yeah. paid labor. Maybe a spiritual, not to say religious education, but a spiritual element or something geared towards joy and care. I don't know if everyone would want to become an artist or if there would be enough room for all the, the art products in the world. No, I mean, but it wouldn't have to be the art products. I mean, it could be somebody enjoys sailing or somebody else enjoys playing golf or taking walks in nature or just chilling out with friends and watching television. I mean, there are all kinds of hobbies and activities that appeal to different people. And I mean, right now it's striking how much the school system is not optimized for preparing people to enjoy life. They're very much, despite the rhetoric and some little concessions to, I don't know, appreciating literature. I mean, mostly it's a kind of factory system for producing human workers. You take young kids who are wild and creative and rambunctious and you sort of seat them in rows in a classroom and discipline them and basically teach them to be office workers. And to some extent, I guess it's a necessary thing because there is still a lot of work that has to be done in the world today. There is like people who have to fill in insurance forms and all of these things are required for us to enjoy a high quality of life today. But if those things were no longer required, then there would be no reason to retain that model of education. And then I think a very different model would be suitable. In fact, I think the transformation will go much deeper than that because these same technologies that will allow us to automate human work eventually will also allow us to develop tools to change human nature itself, to reprogram our minds and our biology, the more basic level, and which then opens up an even larger set of possibilities. And so I think while it must be interesting as a thought experiment to consider what would the world be if it were roughly like now, except we didn't have to work and you can then consider how we might sort of play around with the education system and our public culture and so forth. But I think what we really face is an even profounder change into this condition where human nature becomes plastic in the sense of malleable. And we then have to think more from the ground up, what is it that ultimately brings value to the world? If you could be literally any kind of being you chose to be, what kind of being would you want to be? What constraints and limitations? Uh, and flaws would you want to retain because it's part of what makes you, you and what aspects would you want to improve? I mean, if you have like a bad knee, you probably wouldn't fix the knee. If you are nearsighted and you could just snap your finger and have perfect eyesight, that seems pretty attractive. But then if you keep going in that direction, eventually it's not clear that you're human anymore, right? You become some sort of idealized ethereal being, and maybe that's a desirable ultimate destiny for humanity, but. I'm not sure we would want to rush there immediately. Maybe we would want to take a kind of slower path to get to that destination. There is that whole element of transhumanism and neural wetware. And I think that I would be hesitant just knowing the way technology is always improving so quickly. So I'd probably want to wait. <laughs> right. Wait yeah. the last minute until it was perfected. Right. Yeah. No, that, that's very wise. You were assured that it would be easy to upgrade as better technologies came online. The way we kind of currently install new versions of software, that's kind of easy to do. It's hard to fix the hardware of like you buy a computer and uh, yeah, I mean, you could theoretically unscrew the 
chassis and put in new chips, but at some point it's easier just to buy a new computer. On the other hand, the software is easy, right? Like you might not even notice it, like your browser will install new patches and features every few weeks automatically. And if the technology reached that level where it would be very easy to keep moving on to the newest model, or if it had reached a plateau, like if it actually reached a stage of technological maturity, yeah, then then you might feel more comfortable taking the plunge. But there is still the question of value there, like whether you value the destination or the journey. And if so, what kind of journey you prefer? One that is maximally easy and effortless and quick and smooth, or one where you have more participation yourself in getting there. I personally like the effort. I'm an artist and writer, so I believe right. I like the flaws. I mean, right. yeah. It's also what we love solving puzzles. So the flaws just help us appreciate. But these questions on the future of humanity, they've traditionally been those of theology. So as you consider these things, you're speaking about what makes us human and what we value. So what aspects of the human condition are fundamental and important? And as you think the future, what really, what is post-humanity? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a good observation. Well, to some extent, the further you push technology to its limits, the more relevant these traditional theological conceptions become. Now, you asked about post-humanity. I think the word post-humanity has been used by many different people in many different ways to mean all kinds of things. Me personally, the way I like to use the term is as a designator of this hypothesized future human condition where our technologies have developed to the point where they allow a kind of profound enhancement, not just by giving us tools like bulldozers that is kind of enhancement of our muscle, but they are all external, but where we can sort of radically upgrade the human organism itself and cognitively enhance ourselves to become super intelligent or eliminate aging or take control over our moods and emotions directly through neurological, like the set of capabilities that I just described, if they were all available, then I would say that would constitute the post-human condition. Like some people have used the word much more liberally and just think, well, if we just change our self-conception, then we are post-human because now we're thinking of ourselves as some sort of cyborg being. But I think those cultural changes are kind of relatively superficial compared to these developments that I tend to focus on. It doesn't really matter. Like it's just a word. You could use it in different ways. As long as I think you're clear about the sense in which you're using the term. It can legitimately be used to designate all of these different concepts. And that's a question that we often post ourselves about animals, but you've spoken about digital minds, written extensively about that as well. How do we define when something is alive? They're productive, but are they alive in your sense of the word? Yeah, I think alive might in the end not be the most important concept here, but maybe sentient, being conscious or having moral status would be the key question. Once you have a system, be it biological or digital, that has the capacity, say, to experience a conscious suffering, then I think it becomes a moral patient. Other attributes might also endow a system with some moral status. I think it's not clear exactly what they are, but if it has preferences, self-conception, if it has life goals and can reflect on itself, whether or not it's conscious, it's plausible that itself, that that, those kind of functional attributes might ground some form of moral status. And then whether it's alive or not, I think might not be 
what ultimately matters morally. A digital system that was not alive, but that say could experience a horrible pain, I think still deserves moral consideration. And it's interesting because we think that it's not just human beings who have moral status, but most of us would also acknowledge that animals, at least some animals, have degrees of moral status. Even say a humble lab mouse that is used in medical experiments, we think needs to be treated in certain ways. So medical researchers, if they want to perform experiments on mice, they need to go through an ethics approval committee to see that the research is really needed and the smallest number of animals need to be used that's consistent with getting the results. If they are performing surgery, they need to anesthetize the animal before. And a lab mouse, I mean, it's not our current best AI systems are not light years away from a lab mouse. We're approaching the kind of level of cognitive sophistication of small mammals. And so I think the question now starts to arise whether some of these AI systems that we're constructing might not arguably begin soon to qualify for at least some of the lower levels of moral status. And then that will increase as they become more and more plausible candidates for being sentient. And given our track record of how we treat animals, I, th I think there's definitely a reason for concern that we will not succeed in extending our empathy as much as we should into this even more challenging domains of digital minds. I mean, animals, they have sort of eyes, faces, they can squeak. A software agent, a sentient software agent could just be a process in a chip inside a computer. And that seems even harder for the human heart to resonate with that. And so it might therefore require more conscious effort to really try to think carefully about our conduct there to make sure that we are not creating some kind of moral catastrophe. Yeah, it is interesting. On the one hand, I mean, animals, even the very humble creatures do have complex communication systems that we don't fully understand and we can't just because it's not our language. But it's interesting. I agree on the moral, but if I felt like an AI might be doing havoc, I wouldn't hesitate. I wouldn't feel a moral obligation in that way. And at the same time, they can speak, communicate back to us right. on language. Right. Sophisticatedly. So that's, that's a good point. I'd say in some respects, they might have properties that make us underestimate their sentience. But in other ways, as you point out, we might be induced to overestimate the sentience of some AI systems if they are very facile with language. I mean, one then has to look at how that language is generated. If, I mean, you could imagine a very superficial way to generate language where you just basically have in the limits, say canned answers. And th these kind of chat systems go back decades where you had basically humans who had programmed in like a few responses that they could then elicit depending on what the user typed in. And there would be no sentence there, but they could trick some people because these sentences have been crafted in advance to kind of be the type of thing that the human might say that if they felt something. And so there we might over attribute consciousness or sentience to some systems. On the other hand, if the language actually reflected some deeper mental processes, like the way we think is the case with humans, where you have some deep thoughts and feelings, and then you, you put those into words and express them, then th that would be a different matter. And our current large language models that we are building, like GPT-3 and other such, they are probably more of the former kind. I mean, obviously far more sophisticated than the chatbots of yesteryear, but if I had to guess, still better characterized as a kind of extremely flexible and subtle regurgitation mechanism that has learned 
statistical patterns of human language use that they can then reproduce, but without that reflecting deeper intentions and thoughts and plans and feelings. But it is a subtle question and one really has to look at the architecture of these systems and think hard about when it transitions from just sort of replicating the surface of human language behavior to containing the, the substance of the thought of the thinking that underlies it. Yes, I've certainly heard that some opera singers, they can move us, but they might have learned the words phonetically. I have a bias against AI. It feels inhuman, unnatural. And my instinct is to shun it as something that will corrupt the natural beauty that humans add to the world. And there are many downfalls to the advancements in technology. The creation of weapons of mass destruction, the disconnection from reality, the mass censorship and propaganda. Yet, after hearing Bostrom's perspective, I found an avenue to understanding AI as having the potential to make us more human. As a political science and gender, woman, and sexuality studies major at the University of Washington, I have learned to avoid absolutes. I use my studies to make predictions, but more importantly, I use my knowledge to actualize all the possibilities of the future. In the world of international politics, we live in a state of anarchy and oftentimes use the prisoner's dilemma model to demonstrate the possibilities considering two parties acting in self-interests. In a simplified scenario, the two actors can either cooperate or default, which means to not abide by the agreement. Ideally, all actors cooperate, with each actor sacrificing a little bit for the greater good. Another option is that one actor defaults, while the other decides to cooperate. This scenario is the ideal scenario for the actor that decides to default, but the worst case scenario for the actor that committed to the agreement. Finally, both actors could decide to default. As Bostrom touches on, this problem in coordination results in commitment problems or an inability to trust and commit to an agreement due to self-interests. An actor is giving off incomplete information with their incentives to misrepresent their true intentions. Talk is cheap and credibility is difficult to gain. But we can make that prisoner's dilemma potentially simplified with AI, eliminating possibilities of incomplete information and incentives to misrepresent, simplifying the communication process between self-interested states interacting amongst anarchy. There are infinite possibilities with how AI can shape the world in the future and how we choose to shape it as well. And once this advancement in AI reaches the world, who will grant this artificial intelligence rights? Who will be the first to ensure that AI has a moral and political stake in the game? Those who will protect AI in the future and fend for its existence and rights will likely be those who are benefiting from AI. Rights are not guaranteed. Who gains political autonomy and power is not a concept that is concrete. Political rights are amoebic. They have shifted, expanded, and contracted as social, political, and economic conditions change. Political rights create power structures. They ensure a hierarchy of power. So who will be the one to create political rights for AI? Will those serving AI be the people or the government? These thoughts are idealized scenarios, and for me to say that the human experience consists of peace and serenity would be naive. 
Looking at our history of war, violence, and hatred, is it natural or even instinctual for us to pursue our passions? Or is that violence a part of the human nature, considering it has been so prevalent? But is that need to fight, to hurt each other, and compete simply due to the instincts to survive and gain resources? And if AI strips away that need to fight to live, could that human instinct, which seems so intrinsic to who we are, disappear? Let's redefine the human experience. What does it mean to be human? I love reading and writing. I love the natural world and my friends and all the relationships in my life. I ask myself, when do I feel most alive? And it's when I'm telling stories with my friends or rock climbing, laughing, hugging, and even learning. Many people align themselves with their work. Their identities are rooted in their nine to fives. I notice it when I come home to my roommate and we spend hours talking about our days at work or even our days at school. What happens when all our jobs can be fully done by AI? Will my human instincts still drive me to learn, grow, to discover new things about the world and myself? How can schools accommodate this new human experience? And with these digital minds altering our perception of moral ethics, how do you think AI will also influence regime types? Will we see an increase or a decrease in democracies? That's an interesting question. I think AI systems will make it easier to exert fine-grained social control to monitor populations, both their physical whereabouts, of course, with surveillance cameras and mining of the digital traces that we put out all the time. But also, I think increasingly what they are up to in their own minds. If you have access to our email correspondence or our video chats or our purchase histories, I think a lot of information can be derived from that. And right now it requires quite a lot of labor. If you want to have some human analysts pouring over that and reading the transcripts of all somebody's telephone conversations, you could do that for a few high value targets, but it's kind of too costly to apply that level of scrutiny to millions of people to find out what they really think. But I think this will become automatable with AI tools to an increasing extent. You can do sentiment analysis and you could then maybe build up predictive databases about who is most likely to support the opposition party or to join some kind of rebellion. And then those will be powerful tools for regimes that use them to cement their hold on power. So in dictatorships, I think it, there are possible scenarios in which those regimes could just become more stable and immune to overthrow. In democracies, it's less clear how it plays out. I think that there will be more and more automated propaganda. We already see it in kind of very rudimentary forms with bots that they're trying to amplify different messages by reposting them on social media networks. I think that that will become a lot more sophisticated quite soon. That's not like some far futuristic technology, but just with the tools we're developing now and over the next few years, I think it will have more and more articulate bots and you will maybe start to see eventually more deep fakes. You could create more realistic video imagery and exactly how that affects political dynamics is a little hard to predict. One might expect on the margin, it would empower those who either control these networks or make money more capable of being converted into political influence than it is today. If there are sort of better tools for that money to buy, to use. So perhaps on the margin, shifting influence more to 
pools of capital and platforms. But it's very hard to predict. It could also be that different political messages are intrinsically more suited for transmission by these AI-enabled bots, like whether it polarizes people by making it easier for users themselves to censor the world. Like so traditionally, a lot of censorship has been people wanted to make their voices heard and maybe the government kind of shut down their printing presses or threw them in jail. But now a lot of people are doing their own censorship by just kind of blocking out unwanted sources of information from reaching them in the first place. They kind of procure their information feed to only feature things they agree with. And so that then also can shape political that would create increased polarization or, or radicalization, or it, it might indeed have the other effect of making us more easily able to find useful information and the best versions of arguments on the other side. I just don't think we have the kind of political science that would enable us to predict in advance how political equilibria will change when you start to muck around with some of these basic parameters of how our communication world works. But certainly I can see a range of different possibilities. And I think they, these dynamics could be quite important. So it's worth, even if we can't predict in advance how it will play out, we can pay attention as it unfolds and continuously debate and deliberate and, and watch and think about how we might try to nudge that in, in a healthier direction. And some of that I think will be down to us as individuals to try to not just passively absorb whatever comes at us, but think what kind of life do I want to live? What kind of person do I want to be? Realizing that the information that we are exposed to shapes us, shapes our thinking, shapes our feelings, shapes our opinions. And therefore maybe you should be more conscious about what information you expose yourself to actually seek out challenging views, things that empower you as a reasoner, rather than whatever some kind of political campaign or a corporate advertiser chose to present to you as a default. Yes, we were speaking to the director of the Human Nature Lab at Yale, and maybe you're working on something like this too, positively motivated bots. I mean, to counteract all the hate speech or oppositional polarized talk, I don't know if there's as many positively motivated bots <laughs> that they can get out there, but maybe just to counteract that because you have to think about our well-being as well. Yeah, I mean... Theoretically, you could imagine positively motivated bot, like kind of fact checkers that suggested, oh, here is a useful article that is relevant to this thing. You're like, think in reality, it's more dubious whether bots would be the right way to achieve that. I think it might be that as these AI systems out there that are working for other purposes than our own benefit, like say corporations who want to sell us things or governments that want to persuade us of things. That as these systems become more powerful and able to manipulate us, we will need to interact with a wider infosphere via our own AI as a sort of intermediary. We need some kind of thing to stand between us and these other forces, like an AI that is actually on our side. Maybe each consumer needs some sort of AI personal assistant that can help flag things that have trace the origin of different kinds of messaging that reaches us. So we can see, is this actually coming from like a real human, or is this like a bot account? Is this coming from a non sort of manipulative political source, or is this coming from some well-intentioned, honest reporter or scientist with a long track record of trying something that could help us become more sophisticated about how we interpret what we see. And that runs on a different business model than kind of persuading us 
to do different things like buying a bunch of stuff. It would have to be sold on its reputation to actually be on the side of the user. And there might well be a niche for that. Like, I mean, I certainly would prefer my technology to be sold on the premise that it would try to benefit me, help me achieve what I want to do, as opposed to help various advertisers more effectively pitch their products to me. And I, I would be willing to pay a premium to have something that, you know, that really tried to be more a help for me. So that might develop as a kind of layer between us and this wild sphere of highly optimized messages that become increasingly more persuasive. It may reach a point where you just don't want to expose yourself to that. If you want to view it like a solar eclipse or something, you need these special shades, right? Because otherwise the sun just burns your retina. And so maybe similarly, this future internet will be full of such powerful stimuli and messages that you really need some kind of filter. Definitely, because our brains were not designed to go at these paces. But I'm wondering if you can go in a little bit into whether we're simulations, that question about. Ah, well, that does open up a whole other can of worms. But yeah, this, I guess, refers to this simulation argument that I published back in 2002 or 2003, and which has kept attracting a huge amount of attention since. I think it's actually unavoidable once one really starts to think through the consequences of these directions of technological development that we've been talking about with more and more advanced AI. And then you're thinking about what truly advanced AI would be able to do in terms of creating virtual worlds and eventually creating digital minds and more and more sophisticated digital minds living in virtual worlds, including minds like ours that could live in virtual worlds that look like the world we see around us. And at that point, you then start to have to ask yourself whether we have good grounds for being confident that the world that we live in and our own minds, that they are not one of the simulated variety rather than the uh, original biologically implemented kind. And that if you reflect that in the future, there, though, in these scenarios will be many, many more digital minds living in simulated realities than there have been throughout history, minds implemented in biology, then the numbers start to kind of favor the simulation hypothesis. And so the simulation argument tried to demonstrate that at least one of three propositions is true, although it doesn't tell us which one. So the three possibilities is one, almost all civilizations at our current technological stage of development go extinct before reaching this level of technological maturity. So we just don't get there. And if we look around in the universe, almost no civilizations actually do reach it. We destroy ourselves before, and that's like a universal failure mode. So that's one thing that could explain what we see. And another would be that there is a very strong convergence so that even though we do reach technological maturity and gain the capability one day of creating these ancestor simulations, as I call them, we choose not to do that and nor do other equally advanced species out there, that there's this kind of strong convergence where they all just lose interest in doing this for one reason or another. Maybe there's like some ethical injunction that they come to appreciate. That's possibility too. And then the third possibility is that we are living in a computer simulation. And so simulation argument says at least one of those is true. It doesn't tell us which one, but each one is striking and would have vast ramifications for how we conceive of ourselves and our position in the world and our expectations for what might happen in the future. So I see it as a, as an important constraint when we're thinking about these questions. And there are a few other constraints, but they do kind of limit what you can coherently believe about these things. So contrary to what might at first seem to be the case that the future is just completely unknowable, you can't really do 
real research on it because it's yeah, you can just make up any story. And I think it's the other way around that we know a number of constraints and it's quite hard to find even to think of even one story that actually fits all of these constraints that we already know. It's is that that's almost more the challenge rather than that there is no constraint and you can just make anything up and anything is equally plausible as anything else. Well, it definitely liberates our mind to the possibilities of a question, what we do and why we're here. So finally, as you reflect on education, the challenges we face, the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I mean, they are living in a very unusual and critical time, I think. And so being awake to that. I'm always hesitant to give advice to a whole generation because I think the advice that's good for one person might be bad for another. Like a lot of useful advice. I think each person, they kind of make a lot of errors compared to what would be best for them, but some are on going too far in one direction and others are in going too far in another direction. Like some are too hard on themselves and other people are too soft on themselves. So there's no general advice that would be good for all of them. Like you want to see what does a specific person do wrong relative to their goals. And then there might be some little advice that would be useful for them, but that doesn't work if you sort of generalize it to everybody. But I mean, I don't know. Enjoy it while it lasts. That's important. Yeah. And there's the joy even in the struggle and yet enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Well. Yeah, we're, we're facing a lot of change. So as you well know, but we can overcome it and perhaps with our AI friends. So thank you, Nick Bostrom, for your important research into superintelligence and the future of humanity, for helping us understand what we value, where we're going and consider possible outcomes to ensure a positive future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Well, thank you. That was fun. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Sydney Field with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Sydney Field. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Higginbarth. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.